Here we've got episode number 95. Do you know someone with cancer? Maybe you have a close friend or relative that has passed from cancer or maybe you yourself are currently facing this awful disease. Stats are almost at one in two humans. 50% of people will face cancer in their lifetime. And important to note that we all have cancer cells in our bodies, so we are all susceptible to this awful disease. Thus, this episode today is literally for everyone. As you know, I myself work in a cancer hospital and it was this exact journey that motivated the podcast, my education in nutrition and my passion for the diet against disease approach. Now, on today's episode, we talk about what is missing from standard of conventional cancer care, how metabolic flexibility is a huge part of the healing puzzle and how low-carb, keto and fasting can be used as a very powerful therapeutic agent. I implore you to dive into today's episode with an open mind and if it resonates with you, don't hesitate to reach out and we can dive a little deeper. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You are in for an absolute epic interview today, which really does pertain to, well, not getting sick and dying, which is, of course, good. It is my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy lifestyle that they truly want before December 2020. And I really do believe that sorting out your nutrition and lifestyle will reduce your probability and delay the onset of cancer, which is what today's episode is all about. And we have a real heavyweight a Navy SEAL, if you like, in the cancer world on today's show. She's an, the author of the famous cancer text, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, Integrating Deep Nutrition, The Ketogenic Diet, and Non-Toxic Bio-Individualized Therapies. This is a mammoth contribution to the fight against not only cancer, but this now highly commercialized industry of dis-ease, and it contains a heap of truth. So, who is the author? Dr. Nasha Winters is here with me today and she has a laundry list of accolades, which is amazing. Nasha is a sought-after luminary and global healthcare authority in integrative cancer research who consults with physicians around the world, bridging ancient therapies, which we love here on the show, with advancements in modern medicine in the digital era. Nasha is a naturopathic doctor and in fact had a personal journey with cancer and now a very successful medical career spanning over 25 years, which has her on a mission to educate and empower the nearly 50% of the population expected to have cancer in their lifetime. Prevention is the only cure. And she also uh, consults and mentors other physicians in how to manage and work with their own cancer patients in a more holistic and metabolically favorable fashion. And the book I mentioned in the beginning, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, is in fact a bestseller, one that sits on my shelf that I uh, read a while ago for the first time and I did a bit of a refresher for this chat today, thanks to Audible. And interestingly, Nasha and I connected as co-speakers on the recent Quit Sugar Summit, which which was a massively successful seven-day-long online event. And so, needless to say, I'm pretty stoked to be able to have a conversation with you today. So, a warm welcome to the show, Nasha. Wow. Wow. And wow. That was a great intro. Thank you. Thank you. And I love that we also have a a kindred spirit of our love for all things Mexico as well that we were able to chat about before you started. And it ties into just our our love of culture and food and supporting communities and whatnot. I just, this is an honor to be here with you and your tribe. 
Likewise, likewise. And yes, I love Mexico. It sucks that there's no world travel going on right now. I would love to be there with you and do this in real in real life. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Next time, next time. <laughs> All right, we'll book it in, we'll book it in. Um, so can you tell us about your own experience with cancer? And I'd love as well if in that, in that sharing that you could also tell us maybe the epiphanies that you experienced or the, the things that occurred that sort of sort of told you that convention treatment was falling gravely short of supplying sufficient treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people who know me or know of my story now, they just sort of assume that, um, it was, it came easy, that it was a quick, like a slight switch or taking a pill and it was over. And yet October 20, you know, 20 this year, it will be 29 years out from that, uh, dreaded, diagnoses, despite the fact that I've been kicking around some major symptoms in and out of the ER for months and months on end prior to that diagnosis. And honestly, in hindsight, looking back, I really never had a healthy life or a healthy lifestyle leading up to that. So now it's more interesting to me to look back at all of the pieces of the puzzle that were happening before my diagnosis to help me understand why I landed there the way I did, as well as what has now informed my almost 30 years of exploration since then. But ultimately, I had so many health issues around digestion, around uh, skin, around hormones, that by the time I was nine years old, I was menstruating, I was put on birth control pills at 11 for my polycystic ovarian syndrome endometriosis. I had horrific, I mean, I'd bleed pretty much months and months on end, end up uh, needing transfusions. Um, I was just super sick all the time. I was on tons of like antacids and digestive, you know, medications diagnosed with IBS, all of these patterns. So by the time I was really sick and by the time I landed in the ER um, with end-stage organ failure, a belly full of uh, cancer fluid known as ascites, um, malignant ascites, not inflammatory ascites, and people doing the proper testing, proper diagnostic workup, imaging, and labs to realize I was at the end of the rope of a stage four ovarian cancer process. It was honestly the the, the, the junction I hit, there was not even an offering of standard of care for me. They knew my kidney function and my liver function. They knew that my uh, electrolytes, I mean, you're in the medical world to know this, like I was not safe for even a single dose of chemo. They thought that would take my life just outright. And it likely would have. The other thing, I had a terrible bowel obstruction. I was throwing up everything. You can imagine nothing was going in. And, And so in that, when you talk about the ahas, number one, they couldn't do anything. I was sent home to die. Right. Okay. Number two, they said, we can get you another opinion and maybe get you stabilized enough to consider therapy, but maybe that will give you three months. So it wasn't exactly like, hurrah, I'm going to rush off and do that. At 19, just turning 20, I uh, part, part of it was naivete. I had no access to Dr. Google. I had no access to the, the Maddies of the world who were out there, you know, <laughs> advocating for us. So I had to dig in on my own. So I wanted to understand why, number one. The other piece of it is because I was so ill, in retrospect now, I couldn't eat. Couldn't eat for almost two months. Wow. I couldn't take very anything except for tiny sips of water. That is actually probably the most significant aha nearly 30 years later of probably what saved my life. And we can go into the details of what happened to me metabolically from that. But the bowel rest was one thing. So I didn't just die outright of, a, of an explosion of my bowel but also what it was doing to my mitochondria, what it was doing to allow my body to put its resources to healing elsewhere versus to digesting food and to inducing apoptosis and sort of resetting uh, pathways and signaling that had been long forgotten or long 
miss, you know, like not listened to in my own body. As one of my patients said, I was literally putting the sticker over my check engine light <laughs> on my dashboard for so long that I wasn't even aware that I was sick. And how weird is that given my laundry list of health conditions and medications and doctor's appointments that I had no understanding of that. So um, that was a pretty big aha for me as well. And then the other ahas is I've spent the last 30 years learning everything I can about myself, about cancer, and helping thousands of other patients go through the same process, helping them understand the why of what brought them to that moment and what gets them out of it. And I also think another piece for your listeners to listen to or to hear here is that that wasn't an overnight awareness. It took me from 1991 until 2010 to really stabilize things. And I think that freaks people out when I say that. Yeah. And so part of my mission is not about pushing back the tumor, the tumor cell, about curing cancer, about eradicating every last moment. My understanding for how I've survived all this is I can live well with cancer. I can thrive well with cancer. And I can kind of kick the can down the road a little bit longer, a little bit further each time I learn something new to apply. So I've been literally being the living learning laboratory for this process for nearly three decades. And it's almost like every time I cross another benchmark of survival, a few more studies come along the way that either validates my experience or takes me on a whole new direction. Yeah, wow. And and when you say that at the time you didn't have Dr. Google, like what year are we talking we're talking, we're talking fall of 1991, probably before you were born. <laughs> so. Not quite, not quite. <laughs> I, love I was born it, in the late to... 80s, but I wasn't, uh, okay. I wasn't old enough to have much there free thought, let's say that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it, I love it. But you know, it's interesting because I went to a small four-year liberal arts school and we were not well-funded, so our library was a bit dated. And in that, that actually probably saved my life as well. Because I was pre-med, mm -hmm. okay? That was my shtick. I was a biology, chemistry major. Um, that was my passion. That was my interest. I wanted to go to conventional medical school. That was my plan along the way. And That was, was my plan too. <laughs> so there you go. It's like it's, it took a little different <laughs> turn for events there. I still went to medical school, but I chose a different approach in my medical education. Yeah. But what I stumbled upon trying to understand cancer for myself was literature and textbooks from the 1920s through the 1960s that highlighted the work of Dr. Otto Warburg. And that information was what was stuck in my outdated textbooks in my library that started to inform my decisions and my awareness. So there was that piece happening. The other piece happening was the early work of Dr. Candace Pert. Um, and a few others, I can't believe I'm forgetting their names right now. It's just the end of a long work day, but a few others that were coining the concept in the early, late eighties, early nineties of psycho neuroimmunology. So there was that piece, um, which we'll come back to in a moment. And then also this amazing work I started stumbling across of the research on like microfiche. You'll love, you know, your listeners probably have no idea what the heck that is of a woman named Dr. Mina Bissell. This was in her early medical career where she was doing research and learning about the extracellular matrix. And basically that that was likely more where we should be putting our attention to what those cells, cancer cells were floating in versus what, what the cancer cell was actually doing. So those weird turns of events are what created the, the foundation for me, what informed every thought, every step, every approach I've taken ever since. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing. And and I've come across uh, much of the same information after digging through lots and lots of content, including your own stuff, um, which is obviously phenomenal. But I'm I'm really curious. So the Warburg effect um, for listeners that haven't had experience with cancer is one of the hallmarks of cancer. But it's not in conventional cancer therapy. It's really not given any attention um, in, in a, as from a therapeutic or treatment response. Um, Western medicine really heavily focuses on genetic mutation and kind of thinks as the others as just kind of, if we fix the genes, well, everything else by, by default will just kind of fix itself, right? So I'm wondering if for the listeners, you can dig into the Warburg effect, what you learned, maybe the way as well that conventional engages with it and how you do. Sure, sure. So um, not exactly sure who all of your listeners will be, but I always give, I give the same talk, whether I'm talking to a patient with zero scientific background, or a physician or researcher, yeah. because I like for all of us to have the same language and narrative at the table so we can have cross communication. I love that. It's actually some of the things that are missing in our medical system. So <laughs> I'm going to give you my spiel. So the way I think about the metabolic effect of cancer or the Warburg effect of cancer is that we have these natural processes happening in our body that is about the fuel we put into our body, how it's processed through a little chemical reaction inside of a little organelle inside of our cells known as the mitochondria, and the way that um, energy, how efficient that energy is on the other side. That's happening hundreds of thousands of times a day in bajillions of cells within our body without our awareness or even thoughtful input, right? I mean, although not, there are some cool studies about you can actually put in thoughtful input, um, but, but mm, on the- I'm thinking Bruce Lipton there. I know. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> so um, that's a pretty cool thing. And that was part, he was part of that psychoneuroimmunology world as well. Mm. But ultimately, the fuel that we're taking in is what our cells then digest and move through. What Otto Warburg was finding in his research, and he was, you know, he was literally coinciding a lot of his research at the same time Watson and Crick were picking up the momentum in their research. So we had sort of the somatic camp, which is the genetics you talked about, and the metabolic camp, which is what Dr. Otto Warburg's work was in. And again, he wasn't going out this thinking he was going to find the answer. He just was a curious person. That's science, right? We get curious, we ask questions, we dig deeper, which usually brings up more questions and we keep digging. Today, unfortunately, we almost feels like we stopped asking questions and stopped getting curious about 70 years ago. Uh, that might be harsh. But Absolutely. I don't know about you. We were, okay, told, so. we were told what to think. <laughs> and then it's like, er, it just stopped there. And if you questioned it, then you are a charlatan. You know. So that, that being said, so here's the way I like to think about it. When our cells are healthy and their fuel source is working totally in alignment with our bodies and our body's fuel needs. Those cells are respiring, they're breathing. When time goes on, you know, like when you take enough hits to your body, be it through your diet, through your lifestyle, through toxicants around you, through um, x-rays, through pharmaceuticals, through even terrible thoughts or chronic stress or poor circadian rhythm or, you know, thick sticky blood and poor oxygen perfusion. I mean, I'm listing kind of the terrain things that impact the behavior of those cells to be efficient and effective in making energy, okay, making ATP, Yeah. when they basically stop breathing, they basically ferment and not the kind of fermentation we want to ingest, right? Like <laughs> this is not like a healthy, hearty sauerkraut. <laughs> this is like a cesspool. This is like, you know, go in mind. It's like they have gotten, it's gotten globbed up. It's gotten gummy. It's gotten funky. It's not efficient. It's not effective. It's, it's now like so gummed up. It's reaching for fast, 
sources of energy, even though it's more inefficient, and it's trying to gobble that up. And the irony is we were actually built to be hybrid engines. We were built to be these beautiful, like as needed seasonally, whatever, what was available to us, what our energy needs were being demanded upon us from our day-to-day activities. We would either burn fatty acids or sugar. And what Dr. Warburg was seeing and what started to shift massively after the 1850s as we introduced the uh, Industrial Food Revolution and started to really kick up that fast, accessible energy source, he started seeing these cells were reaching for more hungrily and switching over. They stopped breathing, but they started gobbling up sugar, glucose specifically, even more voraciously than before. Even though it was less effective, less efficient, it was like a... The panic. It's like how people feel. I actually see it in people. You see them when they get hangry, right? They're like, I don't care what it is. Cram a donut in my face hole and we're good to go. (laughs) That's what your cells are doing at that time. And it doesn't care that it's going to hurt like hell the next day. It's, it's, it's like it's lost its way. And that is basically the very lay person expression of this process that it stops respiring, it stops being inefficient, and it starts to gobble up glucose at a much higher rate than any other time and basically forgets to how to be a how to be a fat burner, how to be a fatty acid burner. And it gets stuck in a metabolic process. And that process begets more of the same. It begets angiogenesis, which is a response to that hypoxia, to that low oxygenation, that lack of breathing yeah. in the body. So it starts to bring new uh, blood vessels to tumors and tumor cells. That's when it starts to get dangerous. It also increases inflammation, interleukin 6, interleukin 10, interleukin 17, which you had noted finding some infectious co-infection agents in this as well. It definitely suppresses all of our immunoglobulins. It definitely increases things like cortisol insulin and estrogens or other growth factors, which then just say grow, baby, grow. And all bets are off at that point. So uh, I'm thinking of a good analogy is kind of like a rusted lever. Mm. It's that a healthy cell will go back and forth between fatty acids and glucose, back and forth, back and forth. But most people, well, generally in the Western world, particularly where that lever is kind of rusted in the glucose side. And it's really, really hard to get back into the fatty acid burning. It is, very much. And that rusted side is literally what's happening. It's known as a browning effect. If you have any chefs listening, you know, that's like this. You basically cook down sugar, you know, and make this kind of gummy quality. It's like no different than when you're in the kitchen. That's happening in your cells. It actually glycosylates, which is a rapid aging and rusting effect on the tissues and the vasculature of your body. And it also changes coagulation. So it makes your body thicker and stickier and more akin to throwing clots and, and again, uh, lowering oxygen levels further. So as you can see, once you get in that motion, it's not a good, like it's, it's, it's kind of like it builds momentum down the hill and everything kind of globs on and gets worse and worse and worse. And so what's, what's important is that we have to take extreme measures to change that, to step in front of that moving giant snowball boulder moving down the mountainside to shift it, stop it, and change that behavior. And the irony of cancer care today is no matter how well-intended it is to be cytotoxically reducing the tumor bulk, the treatments themselves perpetuate this very pattern we're discussing. 
Yeah, I was going to go there next, actually, and say, <laughs> why? Do, what's your personal opinion about why conventional medicine? And and I'm, I'm glad that you said that. You know, no matter how well intent intentioned it is, because yeah. every cancer doctor and scientist I've ever worked with is there to help people. You know, and it's really important to acknowledge that, and, and that they're just part of the same system. You know, but Absolutely. I'm really curious what your thought is as to why conventional cancer therapy doesn't really engage with diet beyond. Because uh, in my experience, the, the dietitian on the ward is usually focused on keeping the patient alive and the definition, the conventional, and this is going outside <laughs> conventional cancer therapy to, to conventional yeah. dietetics, which is keeping someone alive in a chronic condition is just all about calories. It's just a calories conversation. And where do you get the highest calorie foods from the food revolution, right? The high sugar, the high... Um, you know, the high yes. chemically processed and manufactured. And so, um, you know, pumping those things, because I always sort of say there's two things in the body. It's either nutrient or toxin and your body mm. it just picks one. There's no in between. And when yeah. you yeah. are under, undergoing a chemotherapy or a radiation treatment, that's a toxin. Uh, and sometimes a toxic life needs toxic treatment in very few cases. But when you're adding these manufactured foods, you're just adding to the toxic load. And, and, and when I'm, you know, in the hospital, my mind's just melting thinking of this, you know, I'm like, how is this happening? So I'm curious, what's your opinion as to why conventional treatment doesn't correctly or appropriately acknowledge, you know, diet. And of course the, the glycolysis ketogenic aspect of our cells. Well, I mean, first of all, simply doctors aren't trained. Okay, so in the United States, at least less than 25% of the medical schools are even offered an elective course in nutrition. So that's one major obstacle, right? And then there is also just the limitations of what is dictating the recommendations in nutrition are not based on human health and human health studies. They're based on industry drivers. So, you know, I always use the example of the... Um, like the fortification programs that we've put out there. It's like, we took these foods that were basically void of any nutrients. Then we took a synthetic compound and added it to them to fortify them. And we then now give ourselves this sort of mental peace of mind to think, well, now we're giving them all the vitamin D and B12 and folic yeah. acid, but they're giving you all these synthetic bio, not bio um, available, and even in many ways harmful mm. because of pre people's personal uh, epigenetic blueprints and whatnot that don't process them the same as each other, like put 10 people in the room and we'd all process them differently. And then we kind of call it good. And we're like, well, now we've given you your vitamin D too, which is actually not exactly uh, absorbed well, or <laughs> cyanocobalamin forms of B12 or the folic acid, which can actually be quite toxic in most of our bodies today, about 70% of us. And so we call that good. We are kind of mechanical when we think about this. We think about just enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy or just enough like thiamine to prevent beriberi. You know, like yeah. we are not talking about using a diet as a therapy. We are using just the minimal amount to maintain a status quo. And when you look at the population in general, now it goes above and beyond the borders of the United States, unfortunately. But we are all about half par, like it is about 50% of the population probably worldwide are metabolically broken. In the United States, that's about 88% for some studies out there in the last couple of years wow. are metabolically broken. I know, horrifying. So that means like less than 12% of us yeah. are able to be that hybrid engine. 
comfortably. So those are some of the short sightings of this. And then, of course, you know, you've heard, I'm sure your listeners know about the the, the group um, in the 60s that were basically paid off handsomely to say that sugar was fine and it was fat that was bad. And here we have the story of all stories yep. <laughs> of where we are today, where everyone's kind of scratching their head and going, well, you know, maybe eggs aren't a bad problem or butter or whatnot. So my husband and I, when we teach this, we talk about we are what we eat, but also what our food eats. So there's that side. But we also tell our patients, like, go back to what your ancestry was eating. What did your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, what did they eat? And up until about 1850, we were all normal carbers, which we call low carb today in the westernized worlds. <laughs> um, and we've really gone from five. I mean, I just was reading a study the other day. Up until 2014, we went from five pounds of sugar per person per year in the late 1800s to well over 140 pounds of sugar per person per year today. How is that not normal? Like you said, we're not talking about that in the hospital situation. And yet we use technologies that actually screen for sugar uptake at the cancer cell level. And yet we're not making that leap to what could be feeding those things outside of the body. So there's that piece for sure. And then you have a lot of industry drivers. I mean, when I was in medical school, my textbooks did not have a single drug ad in them. Today, my, the, the medical students that come in preceptor with me uh, that I've, you know, coach along the way, their textbooks are loaded with drug ads. Wow. So everyone really? now, they, oh, it's ridiculous. And you guys don't get this, but in the United States, we have massive amounts of advertising for, for drugs on mm. the market. So they're basically telling you, you can go out and have that crappy trans fat you know, high omega-6 fat diet with as much sugar as you can possibly guzzle, guzzle down. And here's the pill that will save your ass. Like that's yeah. like right there next to the McDonald's commercial is that little purple pill that's going to help you deal with the indigestion you get afterwards. Yeah. Right. But they don't tell you that pill is going to wipe out all your B vitamins, which are critical for your neurological health, which are critical for your ability to methylate and detoxify. It's going to wipe out all your fat soluble vitamins, which are critical in you preventing chronic diseases such as, hmm, let's see, COVID. Vitamin D levels are really being studied right now um, <laughs> yeah. as a need to kick up to support folks. If you're obese, if you take any medicate, a lot of different pharmaceutical negate these drugs. If you are terrified of the sun, as I know most of my colleagues are down in Australia, yeah. um, and cover everything up, you are, yeah, hmm, you are really vulnerable to these things because you're not getting in, you're not synthesizing the three days it takes on your skin to go into your body. And nothing works as well as the sunshine, but we're terrified to be in it, you know, and you guys have some different reasonings for why it's a little harsher in your area, but that still can be overcome with proper fatty acid intake. So, you know, I've met a lot of patients who like my husband's a really good example, Irish ancestry, mm -hmm. like would look at the sun and turn into a giant red lobster. <laughs> as soon as we changed our diets in 2010, basically keto ever since he surfs all every day, all winter long without any sunscreen, his vitamin D levels are above 80. He has not burned in well over, a, you know, a decade at this point, and he gets wow. a beautiful little tan. And his siblings, his Irish siblings, are like, "What the hell are you doing?" Because <laughs> he has a super high omega three fatty acid intake now, and it's also upregulated his endocannabinoid system. It's upregulated his immune system. It's helping him absorb his vitamin D much better. These are the things that we are starting to realize that wow, our low fat craze has made us crazy. 
So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. I hope you're loving this episode. But before we get back into it, I want to let you know all about something that I think you'll be interested to hear. It's free. And each week, it brings you informative videos, podcasts, and an engaged community that allows your health knowledge to level up. Who doesn't want that, right? What is it? It's my free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting, Burn Fat, Clear Brain Fog, Boost Energy, which is all about, as the name suggests, intermittent fasting, (laughs) but also how nutrition and the right mindset can make your health better from all angles by reducing inflammation, improving gut health, stimulating autophagy, reducing sugar cravings and insulin spikes, and also how to avoid taking a diet culture approach to your body and your health. Basically, if you want your body, health, and life to get better, then come and join us. Head down to the show notes below, click the Facebook link, be sure to answer the group entry questions so the software will let you in, and I will see you on the inside. The name again, Intermittent Fasting, Burn Fat, Clear Brain Fog, Boost Energy, the link is in the show notes below. Alrighty, let's get back into the episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. speaking of that, I um, I was going to ask, so the ketogenic diet, uh, which you and I both know has been a, a therapeutic tool for a very, very long time. However, to the to the listeners, it the ketogenic diet, which you just sort of touched on there, and obviously this whole conversation is alluding to, is it really seems like because of Instagram and YouTube that it's really just the latest fad. So... <laughs> Can we talk about yes, how it's yes. not the late, not just, just sure. a temporary fad that's and, and how it works metabolically? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to remember that, as we said before, we were born to be hybrid engines. So from the first humans, you know, experiences, we were easily going in and out of burning fatty acids and burning sugars from the beginning of time. Babies, by nature, are born in ketosis. And while they're waiting for the, um, uh, the, you know, the immunoglobulins to come in, while they're waiting for uh, the growth factors to come in, they go into a deeper ketosis after birth. That's a natural, beautiful, healthy state. In the 1920s at Harvard, they started to utilize a therapeutic ketogenic diet. So though we go in and out of this naturally, so let me back up before I tell you about Harvard, just a, a normal, healthy, metabolically flexible person 
should show some amount of ketones simply by fasting 13 hours a day. Okay, that's not even eating a high fat, low carb diet. That is simply taking a little break from eating anything. Yeah. And so, you know, from like finishing dinner at 6 p.m. and breaking fast at 7 a.m., you should be showing some trace ketones if you are metabolically healthy. So that's actually one of my homework assignments for folks. You start playing with that. Good. Now, okay, so that's always good. Now, let's then go back to a time when we knew that this was a natural state of our being in and out of it since the beginning of time. But we learned that if we pushed it, more like a drug. So we really pushed extremely high fat intake from a three to one to a four to one ratio, upwards of 90% of the diet coming from fats, basically down to almost 0% of the diet coming from carbohydrates, and then a very tiny amount of protein or amount coming from protein, we could create a metabolic state that basically bathed the brain and the nerves and the nervous system in these ketones that are incredibly neurologically protective. And it would allow all the organs of the body to hum along with no problem, with a full stability, with a full clear of mind, and a lot of other impressive findings. We found that that was the best treatment for pediatric So pediatric, hear that, you know, we're terrified of ever doing anything with kids, but this is where we really started to learn that we could use a therapeutic diet to change a clinical outcome. And we used that for a good 20 some years until the drug companies came along. Yeah. Again, post-World War II, what are we going to do with all that leftover ammo? We're going to throw it into the pharmaceutical industry and into the agriculture industry. Yeah. That has been a huge, huge experiment gone bad. And that's when everyone said, well, even though these drugs don't work as well as the diet, they made that decision for parents and families across the world saying, it's still just easier to give a pill. And it basically fell out of the way until a few years later, good old Charlie's foundation, thanks to a a father who had a son that was unbelievably riddled with horrific, horrific seizures that no pharmaceuticals were touching. And they were ready to just basically sever the sides of his brain. And he stumbled upon this old research, sort of like my accidental stumbling upon things during my process. This is what, you know, the Abrams family stumbled across and have since created a foundation and have since created a movement and have since brought um, utilizing a ketogenic diet in the pediatric population for neurological conditions, seizures specifically, but for all kinds of kiddo issues today, including brain tumors and neurological, other neurological issues as a primary treatment. Right. So that's where when people talk about it being kind of a new phase, insane. And, And for myself, you know, my initial way of getting into ketosis wasn't about eating a high fat diet. And to this day, what I maintain is the cycling, you know, now that I'm not using it to fight back a cancer process of mostly fasting is the way I achieve ketosis today. You know, and so there are people who need to have higher fat and lower carbohydrate. There are people who just need to fast. There are some people who are so metabolically broken that they need to bring on some exogenous ketone support in the interim to help their body remember. It's like the training wheels to help remind them how to do this gig. And there are folks that can just simply get there by low keto. Like my husband does not eat a ketogenic diet, but he eats low carb and he always is like blowing a, I mean, a blood, his blood tests are around a one to 1.5 on blood ketones. That's just eating low carb and low carb for him is less than 75 grams a day of carbohydrate. That's still a lot of carbohydrate for someone in the low carb community, but he has retrained his body by deep fasting, by eating high fat, low carb for periods of time that his body goes easily in and out. That's that concept 
the flexibility that we're trying to achieve for all of our patients to head off all disease processes, specifically cancer as well, at the passes. Yeah, absolutely. And that metabolic flexibility kind of goes back to unrusting that lever that we talked about. Yes. Yeah, it's like we're lubing it up, you know, it's like you can power wash it and kind of get it all lubed up again. And then it's, you know, nice and slick and easy to move in and out of wherever you need it, whenever you need it. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. And, and so uh, I do a lot of work myself in the intermittent fasting and low carb, high fat space. I don't use the word keto much because there's so many people on Instagram and YouTube uh, using the keto word that really it's just eat bacon and cheese. And <laughs> I think yeah, you. so I, I, try and, I try and avoid the word because people have these uh, socially media con- conditioned or preconceived ideas about it. But what right. is your, because um, you talked in your own story a little bit about yeah. uh, allowing your body or being forced to have your body rest or your gastro yeah. gastrointestinal tract to rest so um how do you use intermittent fasting and what if or, or long-term fasting and what effect does it have on the cancers cancerous body well one of the things you mentioned earlier was the hallmarks of cancer right and there were for many years uh just six major hallmarks and most of those were things that still looked like they fit in the container of of genetic you know, induction of, of cancer. Yeah. And there were things like growth factors and listening to signals to make things, you know, grow or stop or, or die, you know, the apoptose. And that's where we focused for a long period of time. And then a couple of years ago, we added four more hallmarks to that. And that's where you start to realize that doesn't quite fit now just into the container of genetics as a driver. And that's where it was like, wow, what I've been doing in my entire medical career actually fits more in those four, four um, extra things they brought on, which are about the extracellular matrix, the other signaling pathways, the immune modulation above and beyond just starving glucose. Because I also think that's the other thing that's given ketosis a bad name is that they everyone for cancer, at least, is that, oh, it just starves glucose. It does so much more than that. In fact, work by people like Dr. Adrian Sheck, amazing researcher, it's like we actually can show that ketone bodies impact and push the levers on all 10 of those hallmarks of cancer. Yeah. What other method do we know? What other drug, supplement, herb do we know that does the same? The only other thing that does the same, but it actually ends up with the same mechanism of action, I suppose, or the same, it gets there eventually, is fasting. Yeah. Okay. So that's where it's coming in directly. So what we are learning is that short fast, like even MD Anderson's study on breast cancer a few years back, you know, just followed one. They didn't even ask them what they ate. Yeah. <laughs> Could have been like a, a hostess ding dong, you know, diet for all we know. <laughs> Could have been all meat. It could have been vegan. It could have been any of the spectrum we are all dogmatically, you know, shooting each other for these days. Nah, drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, so they're, but basically they're like, wow, the women who fasted for 13 hours or more a day have a significantly lower risk of recurrence than those that do not. And simply speaking for your listeners, if they didn't know this already, 70% of cancers who've been diagnosed with cancer the first go will have it again. Yeah. So like, why are people not out in the streets? So you want to do everything in your power to change that dynamic. And 30% of all breast cancer patients who've had cancer will get cancer from their cancer treatment. Yeah. And those are some compelling studies. And there's a great book getting ready to come out in the fall that cites all of the research around that. Nice. So we should be thinking, what else can we be doing right now, right? And so that's the strategy of every day. I'd like people to work towards 13 hours every single day. 
that should not be difficult. That's what we all did anyway. It's like when there was no sun in the sky, when there was no light, we were sleeping or, you know, work, you know, like, you know, it was like we were having sex or we were sleeping. It was like we were using that energy <laughs> in a different way, right? And so from that time around, we just got into this rhythm. And then slowly as our lifestyle and the modern times and the modern demands started to make us work longer hours and live and expose ourselves to more technologies and whatnot for longer periods of time, we've gotten out of rhythm in a lot of things, including our eating habits or eating patterns. So simply getting people to 13 hours a day, I don't even care which part of your day as you know, it goes through the dinner time, you know, or through the bedtime as well. So, right. You know, that's, I tell people like, don't freak out because seven to 10 of those hours are going to be while you're sleeping. Totally. So that should help people feel good. But do you know how many people, I mean, 12, less than 12% will be able to do that in the United States Yeah. because the others are going to say, I can't go to bed without a snack or I wake up hungry or I have to get up and have a snack to go back to sleep Yeah. or I'm anxious in the evening. And I have to eat something. Those are all your clues that you're metabolically inflexible, whether you have a disease process or not. The next step is to push yourself a couple times a week, 16 to 18 hours, twice a week. Give that a whirl. If it, take, if it takes you months to get there, don't worry about it. If you get to 13 hours and 13 minutes, that's great. Keep adding an extra minute until you are able to do a longer fast a couple times a week. Yep. That resets a lot of things in your body. It really gives some bowel rest. And then people like Dr. Walter Longo and other longevity researchers around the world, they're like for the ultimate longevity gig, whether you're trying to treat or prevent cancer or other just want to have good, healthy aging along the way. A three to five day fast several times a year is a very powerful way to completely change the game. And so for my patients that are actively cancering, again, I'm looking at a lot of parameters. So they're being guided safely through this process. Um, We shoot for three to five days every month during their cancer treatment. And for sure, monthly for the first six months out. And then I encourage them to maybe keep it seasonal um, for the first few years out and then once or twice a year beyond that. But I will tell you, they all stick with doing it monthly for the long haul. If not, at the, if they start to spread it out at all, they're still doing it every couple months because they like what it does for them. They like how they feel. They like how they think. They like its effect on their pocketbook <laughs> and their ability to focus on other things versus food and meal preparation and meal cleanup. Yeah. And they like what it's doing to their labs. They like what it's doing to the metrics. It's changing insulin. It's changing cortisol. It's changing estrogen dominance. It's upregulating all kinds of immune, like the bone marrow completely responds um, favorably to this. It also, if they are taking any pharmaceuticals, because that kind of ties all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, when you're putting poison or nutrients in, you can only really focus on one thing at a time. Yeah. And it's usually going to default to the, the poison. So isn't that powerful? If you actually don't put anything else in, but just the poison, and you're in a fasted state at the time you're taking in that poison, you are actually changing that poison into kind of a super bomb, yeah. a smart bomb in your body. And you're changing all the side effects. You're actually enhancing tumor cell die-off. You're helping overcome drug resistance. You're lowering all the typical side effects. And you're bringing in a protective nature sort of accidentally for the bystanders, the innocent bystanders, healthy cells around the building. That's what's so incredible to me. Yeah, And it's free. You know, you're bringing in a free tool that is super powerful. 
Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing too is that uh, because of the way that we, the commercial food industry has made it so cheap and so available that when you bring up a conversation about either, you know, high quality food being part of the answer or not eating, mm. that there's got to be, there's got to be this, you know, couple of months or, or even couple of years for people to be, to start building the belief around that. Because yeah. when you say, oh, so don't eat, but what if I get hungry and, and, and as if hunger is something that needs to be cured or, or, or what if I, you know, what if I run out of energy or anything? And and it's, it takes a while, I find, to build people's belief enough to really understand that food is really a medicine yeah. and not putting food in can actually make you a better functioning human, which, yes. you know, and I get the logic because we think things, all things are cumulative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do a three to five day fast probably every two months. Nice. Um, and I feel amazing. Like, and yeah. I've, I've got clients that do the same thing and like, I, it's to the point where, you know, at the end of that two months, I can really feel my body needs to do that, you know, but I, I'm, like I think it's time. just that. Yes. <laughs> totally, totally. But yeah. I think it's just that education yeah. phase by putting food and fasting in people's minds yeah. as a therapeutic agent takes a bit of time because we've got this kind of, there's so much food as if right. food's the answer. Right. Well, and ironically, up until the 1970s, this is how most oncologists supported their patients was with fasting. Yeah, right. But then something shifted in the, the ethos of the shift happened in the 70s where we started saying, oh my God, don't starve your patients. No matter what, you keep them there. You said the focus became on the calorie, yep. which I will tell you, and, um, uh, the whole process of, cata- of um, the catabolic process of cachexia, the breakdown of muscles in a cancerous process has nothing to do with calories in. And I can tell people all the time, you can be skinny, like a rail, like looking like a bag of bones and not be in cachexia, yep. which is a metabolic breakdown of muscles, or you can be morbidly obese and be in metabolic breakdown. It doesn't, you can't look at the outside of the body and say, you can eat or you can't eat. Yeah. You have to do a deeper dive. You have to look at the serum protein levels. You've got to look at the serum creatinine, the serum calcium. You have to look at the serum albumin levels. Yeah. And when you look at those as a con- collection of data points, as long as they're all okay, I don't care how skinny you get. Yeah. Because one of the things that happened after World War II, when we came and liberated them from the concentration camps, we killed a hell of a lot more, many thousands more with something known as refeeding syndrome. Yeah. Because the first thing the Americans did, we came and we gave them a Hershey bar. Yeah. And so you took these people who'd been fasting and they had moved. When you get past five days of fasting, you go into muscle conservation. Yeah. So even if you look skinny as a rail, you still have the right amount of muscle in your body surrounding the tissues and holding your structure together. And if you suddenly give a body that's been in that state a bolus of sugar, you shut down all the organs. Yeah. You d- you explode the system. This is in essence what we're doing when we bring a patient in, we put them on a feeding tube. Yeah. This is known in cancer wards, you work in one. This is known as the beginning of the end when a patient does this. Yeah. It has been my personal experience and that of many of my colleagues that I've been able to convince them of this research, although the data is really really well characterized out there, and clinically speaking, it is far safer to fast those patients than it is to try and shove more calories into their bodies. Absolutely. And you will have a different outcome. And thank God we have some pretty amazing studies coming out around this because there will be a chapter, an entire chapter dedicated to cachexia in my next book because this is probably the biggest myth to overcome in the realm of oncology nutrition. And it's to me, it's such malpractice because we know that we could give that patient 15,000 calories and it's not going to change their condition. 
I should say that it will change your condition if it's high carbohydrate because it will only worsen the condition. So cachexia is driven by more inflammation and metabolic disease by more sugar. So those are the two drivers of this metabolic breakdown of the cancer patient. And yet we've made the, the patient believe and their families believe and the caregivers believe that this is, you know, you got to feed them, you got to feed them, you got to get them on that boost and ensure. And I tell them the only thing that's going to ensure is their untimely death. And so depending on which studies you look at, 40 to 70% of cancer patients die from cachexia, not from cancer. Yep. You know, and as you were pointing out, which I thought was brilliant, and I'd love to talk to you more about this someday, most patients are dying from the toxic burden of their treatment versus the cancer itself. And so I'm a living proof of that, as are thousands of patients of mine who are still living with cancer. Yeah. It's just not, we've, we've figured out because it is us. Yeah. And we've learned how to create, reestablish the communication, reestablish the rhythm, keep things contained and walled off where they need be. And in some situations it goes away altogether, but that isn't the end all be all goal. And so the new movement in oncology, and we kind of, this has been a heck of a long circle to get us here, <laughs> is that where oncologists got off the boat is they stayed with um, but what these poor doctors also learned back, um, you know, 70 years ago is this concept of maximum tolerated dose. Yeah. That's how we've treated cancer all these years. The emerging data, thank God there's research all over the world and there's like Rosen center and call in, um, uh, Moffitt center in the U S and a big, a big clinic trial happening right now in Utah and Arizona using what's known as the adaptive theory of cancer. Yeah. And so this is to your very point early on that you can use chemo and radiation and targeted therapies and hormone blockade therapies in an entirely revisioned way yeah. by basically using a hormetic dose, which if you haven't covered hormesis with your podcasters, you might have an episode on that because it's pretty fascinating, Absolutely, which means a little bit of toxicity actually creates a little physiological upgrade. Mm. You know, like that's our cold showers, for instance, yeah. like it stresses the in the right way yeah. to have post-traumatic stress resilience or growth. And so that is what is emerging. And that is what, when I've had the opportunity to work with patients in places like Mexico or Europe or Southeast Asia that are already applying the adaptive theory approach with their cancer patients, we can really blend the best of Western oncology standard of care yep. with these integrative vetted functional metabolic therapies and have unbelievable outcomes. And this is where oncology is going that I'm hopeful for. And I'm so grateful that I'm alive today to still see that this is possibly going to happen before I die, yeah. um, which is really amazing. But that's how you really can use the poison as medicine. Absolutely. And it's it's like, um, yeah, like you said, the cold showers. It's like, you know, when we get sick in winter, our body's just adapting and collecting data from the environment to be like, okay, we've got to build an army for this particular thing. And, yeah. and it's like we go to the gym, we have DOMS, you know, our body's recovering yes. and that stress yes. builds muscle, right? Totally. Just like intermittent fasting yep. is a stressor to the body. And if you work out in an intermittent fasted state, you can have some of the best muscle growth in your practice, which is, you know, we were always like taught to bulk up, eat up, eat really big before and after. Actually, we're seeing the opposite of that is likely true for certain people at certain times. You know, maybe women have to think about things cyclically. You know, yep. maybe it's maybe it's best to have a little bit of a carb load right before your menses. Yep. Um, but that is and carb load being let's load up on your tube like your um other like vegetables. higher carbohydrate vegetables. Yes. <laughs> let's not go on like a pizza beer bender, right? Let me I'm glad I qualify that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but there's things like that. So hormesis is even of the hunger or hormesis of, you know, like of this, of a pasana 10 day silent meditation retreat is one hell of a hermetic experience yeah. <laughs> if you've never tried something like that, you know, or the training that everyone's doing now where they're cutting out the blood circulation and you're getting like 10 minutes of intense training with cutting off your blood circulation. And it's like you've worked out for three hours. Yeah. And those are how we can evolve into a newer, truly like biohacked way of dealing with both cancer treatment and prevention in a profound way that I think is so exciting to me when I can look at people who can use a tenth of the dose of chemo with very little, if any, side effects, or even things like the um, carbon ion radi radiation treatment that has been out of Southeast Asia. We just got our first one in the United States, it's still in research here, but where the actual tiniest amount of radiation actually creates an immunogenic reaction. Yeah. It's basically like an immune therapy now. Yeah. And people go to Europe to take the waters to sit in radon caves, we're crying out loud, or or the the waters we sit in in Ojo Caliente in New Mexico are full of arsenic. Yeah. And everyone's like, what the hell would you want to sit in arsenic for? Well, if you know your arsenic levels aren't naturally high or your iron levels aren't naturally high, mm -hmm. those little hermetic uptakes of those minerals can be incredibly powerful to signal a lot of immune pathways in your body to do its job even better. Well, and that's like um, uh, eating broccoli. It, it uh, conditions there the liver go. to produce produce those um, cyanide uh, metabolites so that, you know, it, totally. it prepares your, like nobody feels poisoned by it, but it's conditioning right. the yes. liver to remember how to create those metabolites to detox you if you exactly. got cyanide poisoning. Exactly. And here it's funny because, you know, now everyone's kind of afraid of vegetables. And I <laughs> yeah. love Dr. Gundry and his work, but he took it a little too far for people. So they're all petrified <laughs> yes. of their the lectins and these chemicals in their vegetables, right? I'm like, everything has a lectin for crying out loud. But ultimately, those are hormetic yep. exposures that we need to upregulate our epigenetics switch with switches to do their job that you came in here to do. Like that is what is so exciting to me. And though you can shift things by going, I mean, three days on a vegan diet or three days on a carnivore, or three days of eating nothing will change up your microbiome. Totally. So it's like any big change you're going to do can be quite helpful. And think of those as like a hormetic effect. But I think it's when people get very dogmatic and think it's their way only and stay with that and keep yeah. going. Like you, I hesitated to use. It was our publishers who were like, let's throw keto on this. You've been doing it for 20 some years, but you've never called it that. And then suddenly I get pegged as the keto lady. I'm like, I'm the metabolic flexibility girl. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm all about. And so, I'm with you. you know, and there's, <laughs> thank you. And there's many roads to Rome to get there. Totally. Wonderful. Well, yeah. Nasha, yeah. I've really loved hanging out. I really Me think too. we could do a bunch more of these episodes. Thank Let you for your know. time. Great. Very grateful. All the best. And I, I just wish all of you your superpowers of metabolic flexibility. <laughs> Absolutely. So where can everyone sure. find you online? Please come find me at Dr. Nasha Inc. Um, that's where you can find me on all like the social media platforms out there. Look for me on my book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. We have a couple more books. I have a book coming out at the end of this year on mistletoe therapy for cancer, which we could even have an entire episode on that eventually. Can do. Um, as well as next year, we're having a, another book coming out more for the general population because I think people see cancer and they think, oh, that's not me, despite the fact that about 50% of us will face this. We really wanted to write a book that's going to stimulate um, everyone to be thinking in terms of prevention. Yeah. And then also by then we'll be adding the extra 100 to 200 extra pages of content that we'd like to update our current book. We'll add it into that as well. So watch for me there and also watch for me on the Believe Big Institute of Health. If you go to believebig.org and type in Institute of Health, you will also see this hospital 
that I'm talking about that has the best of all worlds under one roof that we are currently in our capital campaign to build in Southeast Arizona. Nice. You will have every workup you can imagine from your epigenetics to your tumor genomics to your full on functional medicine assessment, your, your uh, full on like questionnaire of your diet, your lifestyle, what even zip code you were exposed to for your toxicants there. And then that information will be translated to know precisely where you need to start on this journey. And you'll spend two to three weeks with us getting a full-on program of treatment that you'll then take back home with you to keep implementing after we get you going. And that's where we expect cancer care to go today. We will be using adaptive theory. We will be bringing on something like carbon carbon ion radiation. We will be using the best of the best re-envisioned standard of care with the best vetted integrative medicines for oncology that you could possibly find in the world. That sounds insanely amazing. Uh, I can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah, it sounds so, so good. Um, And for anybody listening, if you've learned anything from this episode, take a screenshot, share it with a friend or family member that you know might need to hear about it uh, and be sure to tag both myself and Nasha as well. I'll put all of our links and everything we've mentioned down in the show notes below. And also to wrap up of all the things that we've talked about today and all the things you've learned about in your journey, what is one piece of information that you wish more people knew about? Oh, wow, gosh. There's so many, but you know, this one's a really simple one. And if your listeners have heard me speak anywhere, I usually repeat this because it's worth repeating. And that is, ask yourself three questions. What brings you joy? For what are you grateful? And what is your purpose? What did you come here to do? Because there are so many studies to show that a, a, a person with joy, gratitude, and purpose have a far better outcome and survival rate when faced with a chronic illness than those who do not. And that is also free. I love that. I think that's a beautiful message. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've loved having you here. I love what you're doing in the world and the contribution you've made already. And I know there's so much more to come. So <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Maddie. And to all your listeners, be well. Thanks. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.